All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 29, and I have asked Jason back to sit on the other side of the table from me. Um, we're going to open up this episode, and it, as I guess I should preface this, as is almost certainly the case with each episode, I generally append in the very beginning some kind of an intro before what you're hearing now. So I'm assuming that will happen by the time this goes up. But anyhow, we're going to come out of the gate here um, addressing some things that were omitted from the 9-11 episode, which was the last episode posted. Um, and it has to do with some of the source material. Uh, I had so much to go through and so much information to try to parse in a kind of meaningful way that I wholly forgot to address Crowley, Blavatsky, and these ideas. But anyhow, let me uh, let me get Jason in here. Hey, Jason. Hey. How goes it, man? I'm great, man. How are you doing? Hey, I can't complain, and if I did, it would not change a thing, and this show proves that. <laughs> All right, well, I'm ready to do this if you are. Yeah, um, I'll just kick it over to you. Uh, you know, we, we kind of have outlined the things that we want to get in here. This this The overarching uh, reason for this show will be to cover social engineering, though we're going to address, you know, some things that were omitted from the 9-11 show here as we open up. And I will further state uh, episode 2930. Episode 30 is going to cover television and the major sources of information for the last three generations of Americans. So, all right, over to you, Jason. Well, the big thing uh, anybody listening to this has to understand is that social engineering is not a newer concept just come up with in the 20th century. It's something that's spanned uh, human history and I would say recorded human history, but goodness only knows if even that's accurate because definitely seems like things have been skewed massively for uh, time immortal. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that, but I, I would submit from the research that I've done that it's primarily the last three generations. Um, so basically, the real kind of meat and potatoes, full tilt ahead social engineering and brainwashing was really growing up in the 1940s during the era we told we were told World War II occupied. And as televisions started to get into every household, the powers that be always knew what a big, big tool that was going to be and so i would submit over the last three generations and i will cover this in depth over the last three generations we have seen a civil a civilization of human beings with a lot of high-minded thinkers people using their mid cortex their upper brain have been reduced to basically lower brain reptilian brain limbic system thinkers uh and very low-minded and in the eyes of the people who who run this place a bit closer to animals than human beings actually right i I think there's no uh odd reason that television is called programming no i i mean i i can barely tolerate like i go i'll record a couple things to do research like an episode of rick and morty or an old movie um i can barely tolerate it anymore it's that offensive to me and it goes to show what happens when you finally break away from this low-mindedness that that television forces you into if you use that product with any regularity uh, it throws you right down into your limbic brain and as anyone can look up your limbic brain cannot distinguish your rep what's called the reptilian brain your lower mind cannot distinguish fantasy from reality it's all about reaction fight or flight you know like an animal 
gets out in the right. field, sees danger, runs. Um, that's what television does to the human mind. And, and there's and, more to it. I'll cover it in the TV episode, but there's also uh, almost no difference between what an opiate drug does to how your brain communicates left and right hemispheres and what television does, forces you into your right mind. So you're, you're literally being drugged by your television as well. Absolutely. Now, to tie off your 9-11 episode, um, two really big figures that have been uh, recycled, I would say, over and over and over again since they, their uh, inception are Aleister Crowley and Helena Blavatsky. And, and they've almost taken on uh, – well, they have taken on rock star icon, iconic status. And um, we don't even know what was real and what was not and – they may have been real people that these images were built upon or they may have been completely manufactured and but this is very important because so many people use these uh use their imagery for all sorts of things so i think we should start with that to kind of lead from the 911 episode into this yeah at this point um i i can't prove one way or the other whether they were real people but i suspect that they were not um i suspect that they're constructs and here's why there are, like when Blavatsky supposedly went into Tibet, there, were all, there was all these writings done to try to prove, to nail down that she was actually in Tibet. You come to things like this and you think to yourself, well, if she was there, it should be an easy enough thing to demonstrate. But this is not the case. But that's kind of a sidetrack. What we see in both these supposed people's work is basically the ripping off of Eastern religions. That's what we see. Um, for Blavatsky, Blavatsky's sake, a lot of it maybe is couched as I went into this culture people didn't have access to and I repackaged it out to an English-speaking world. So there's that kind of maybe claimed value. But for Crowley, I wouldn't even give him that much benefit of the doubt. Basically, a lot of what's claimed for Crowley is he wanted to go find all the magical traditions Hinduism, yogis, meditators, all these Eastern things, um, ancient Egyptian things, supposedly, and make this one set of rules to do this kind of magic, for lack of a better term, and strip away any compassion in a religious sense, any betterment of human beings in a religious sense, and just have these nuts and bolts. But here's my problem. If we were just to accept that Crowley and Blavatsky were real people, by the, own, by the definition we can read handed to us in their books, they would be considered lords and ladies. Which means they were rich, upper crust, ruling class people who did not have to work, who could get on a boat or any other means of transport and go anywhere in the world, which it's claimed they did. And so I have a very hard time accepting that these ruling class people who were all complicit in the situation we find ourselves in today, for the most part, Maybe that's not 100% true, for the most part. Went out and wrote these books that we could all go out and pick up that would help us on our way to live a more meaningful life or to have these insights to all these systems that are built up around us, which we're never taught about. As an example, the average human being is going to grow up in America never understanding that every letter that is written has a numerical value and it was tend intended in that way. If they're lucky when they get older, they'll figure it out. They'll start educating themselves. So then we look at Crowley's work, and there's whole incredibly complex books on gematria. So damn complex that it would probably take the average person a lifetime or a good portion of a lifetime to make heads or tails of it. 
I know this because I read it. And it's not just that. You have to know Hebrew to some degree. And then again, I read accounts from people who spoke Hebrew who said Crowley didn't even know Hebrew that well. So who, who the heck knows? This is my point. It doesn't matter if they were real or they weren't real. The ideas that were put in those books and then published out to the public exist, which means the ideas exist. The fact that we could look at 9-11 and draw these kind of corollary parallels, particularly into Crowley's writing, um, it means what it means. Uh, it's not a fake thing. We can see it. So whether or not the people existed, it doesn't matter. And if, in fact, they did exist, they were what I would consider the equivalent to a lord or a lady or basically someone knighted, or basically the families that hover around royalty. And not only that, Crowley's whole life, he's around all these other people. As an example, uh, what's the guy's name that wrote Brave New World? Uh, Audless George Huxley? Orwell. Uh, Hux um, Huxley, isn't it? Aldous Huxley, yes. I'm yeah, sorry, sorry Aldous Huxley. So Brave New World is a blueprint for what we see coming, this idea of a one-world government. And he was one of Crowley's friends or acquaintances. So all these people, like 1984, the book 1984 is another version of that same idea, just in more stark terms. Um, and Crowley's in the thick of all this. So the idea that he published anything to help the average person who was a blue-collar worker is nonsense, in my view. And again, everything attributed to him is so damn complex that if there is, in fact, value, it would take a person most of their lifetime to understand whether or not that's true. Anyhow, there it is. We, we can jump forward from there. I just wanted to get that out because Crowley was so heavily referenced all through the last episode. Right. And to kind of tie that all up, I would say that... Um... Those two figures, along with numerous other uh, quote-unquote historical figures, it, it seems like they're amalgamations at best or um, just figures used to push whatever the, the, the agenda is needed. I mean it's even happening with people who we know were real like John Lennon. You know, People have this image of who John Lennon was and all the things he was doing, and I, I would suspect that it's a far cry from what he was like if you were hanging out with him for a week straight. Hey, man, if you see someone's image make it on one of the most popular record albums of the last two centuries, uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, there's, there's Crowley. Crowley's right there. But I maintain he did jack to offer in terms of something new in the world. What he did is he went around to all old traditions and he took and he took and he took. Um, whether there is some intrinsic value beyond that kind of blunt statement I just made, I think it would take a person many years to get to the bottom of it. But the fact is, anyone who wants to go be a Buddhist monk can do that. Anyone who wants to go study Hinduism or be a yogi on a mountain or understand meditation or go back to Coptic rites or the Elysian Mysteries, any person could go out and seek to do these things. And in my view, Crowley just basically went and took what he needed from from each of these places in order to make a kind of heartless method, if he was a real person, um, to basically control large groups of people. Um, and that is why he is on the Beatles cover. As a matter of fact, there's a Doors album. Um, the, the, I think it's on an album. It's, it's either a, a publicity shot or an album where all the Doors are around a bust and that bust is Crowley. Um, and as soon as you see that, you better know what you're looking at. The people in the doors were not here to help you. They were social engineering. They destroyed a generation with drugs and basically brainwashing. Everything they were about was planned and implemented. And there is no rock band from that era that is different. 
Um, that's all there is to it. It's why we had rock music in the way we had it. It was meant to go in and engineer an entire young generation. And I will address later, maybe in my next episode, Tavistock Institute documents. Or it's not even Tavistock. What is it? It's uh, the CFR. What's that stand for? Uh, Council on Foreign Relations. Exactly. Council on Foreign Relations or the other one. I'll, I'll have them better later. Club out of Rome. I... Uh, yeah. Couple. Exactly. These in the Trilateral Commission, there mm-hmm. there is actually a document that was supposedly left behind in a printer um, that states, "Don't let the public get this." This document declares that they are at war with a generation and should consider it as such. And this is what they're talking about. They're talking about what they're doing to the young generation of the '60s and '70s, and it, it worked. They, in fact, drugged the living daylights out of probably two generations. Because it didn't just happen to the people in the 60s. This crap went on all the way into the 80s, and we still have widespread drug abuse as, as a, a side effect of what happened in this time. But I, I kind of feel like I'm tracking you off, Jason. I know we have a list to get through. Yeah, no, that's cool. And, and we're going to get to all of that because a- absolutely you're correct that, that what started in uh, the 50s rock and roll and 60s got skewed all the way to today. But uh, going back in time... Social engineering has been going on for for all, just always, and um, I would suggest that all the way back when we were primitive tribes, that that the first bit of social engineering would be tribalism. Like, hey, we're our group over there, over here, and we're different than those people over there, and um, here's why you should support us and not them. I, I would think that that's probably the earliest uh, social engineering, plus whatever primitive religions they may have had. That's right, and we see versions of this today. The idea of tribalism is reflected perfectly in modern-day sports. You know, you take someone like Zachary Hubbard, who I had on for the second half of my last show, and people had been asking, Zach, why are you doing all these shows on sports? A lot of people don't care about sports. The reason he's doing it is because so many people do care about sports, and it's an opportunity for these people who have been sucked into this you know, this engineering concept of tribalism, which is the absolute reason we have sports. It's the same way there were gladiators or a circus, if any of those things ever occurred. Um, and, and, you know, so many people have heard me say, I will never join a group. And this includes religious groups. And you'll find tribalism in the same way in religious groups. Suppose you're Presbyterian or Catholic or Protestant or some other sect of of Christianity. Um, You're looking at tribalism. It's us and them. Well, this is not how the world is going to function at peak performance, and the ruling class has always known this. If they can break you down into groups, they will socially engineer the groups as they find them. And let me tell you something. Uh, As we get further into this, um, like with Hollywood as an example, uh, they're demonstrating that there are actually psychologists and psychology experts from Tavistock and other institutes on the set to change scripts right before they go into production to make sure that the social engineering is put into everything that goes out. And I'm sure that uh, they have completely set agendas that probably shift as time goes on like okay we've accomplished this now we need to introduce this concept and that probably just goes on and on and on well i I can give you a prime example there was some ridiculous movie that i watched about 15 minutes of yesterday with that kevin james guy uh the the king of queens guy where he's a school teacher the the music class is getting closed because they don't have money so everyone's being socially engineered to accept that that's an okay thing 
that a school can just cut things like music or other things that would make a higher-minded society. That's the first part. But what he's going to do is go become a mixed martial arts fighter and fight so that he can get the money so that the kids can have music in their school. This is social engineering on so many levels, and most people won't be able to see it. Because when you look microscopically at one movie, um, you are not getting the full image. When you look across all the spectrum of movies and how many times the idea of schools shrinking, and it even starts with him holding the paper, and the paper says close it down or something like that, and then within three minutes, he is saying the same thing, shut it down. He's repeating what subconsciously was already put into your mind from the quick frames that flashed across the paper headline. There is no portion of television that you will watch that is not brainwashing you, drugging you, keeping you in your lower mind, and social engineering you. But again, I kind of feel like I pulled you forward, Jason. I know we're kind of trying to take a methodic step through. <laughs> well, it, the thing to say about all that that everyone must remember if they don't know is that I believe it's only five companies now own all of mainstream media, so bear that in it's, mind. It's, it's worse than that, Jason, and you're absolutely right. They did, uh, one of the last times this was outlined, it was tracked back to five corporations, but here's the problem. Three or four of them either have Rockefeller, Rothschild, or a combination of the two, and each of the people sitting on the boards for like ABC, NBC, they're in the Trilateral Commission, they're in the CFR, they're in the Club of Rome, all of them. So basically what you're looking at is even though five stated corporations own all the media, all of it. I don't care if you're talking Al Jazeera. All media is owned by five corporations. It's a couple families at the top, and so basically you could you could picture this as five corporations with an overarching corporation above them all. In other words, there is no unique programming on any of them. They all meet in a room once a month or once a week, and they divvy out, like for CNN and Fox. Um, CNN is told you'll do this, Fox is told you'll do that. And to top it off, it can be demonstrated there is no actual real reporting going on. It's 100% propaganda in, in, in the vein of news that we're talking about. There is no reality. No, absolutely. That's without a doubt at this point. Without a doubt. And it's provable without a doubt. <laughs> now, getting back to uh, our wonderful little history lesson here, I would suggest that the next step in societal control would be organized religion. Well, we, we can see – if we simply look at the Vatican, um, we can see what organized religion has done. And to this day, the Jesuit order of the Vatican is akin to any of – you know, as, as bad for us as any secret society you want to point to. As a matter of fact, probably having been involved in and complicit with many of the things that people would attribute to the New World Order or the Illuminati or other things like this. And to top it off, we can pretty much show – that the Vatican never, not for one moment, ever had the best wishes of the people they were supposedly spiritually governing at heart. Instead, what they did is they manipulated them. And we've gone through this before where you can see traditions that people still do to this day without thinking because they can't seem to find their higher mind where a human being can reason things out and instantly understand if something is legitimate. A person living in their higher mind does not have to stop and think. If you have learned to live in your higher mind, you look at a thing, you know whether it's something you want to be around or you don't. 
You may not know everything about it, but you do know that. And the idea of smearing your old palm ashes for Ash Wednesday or whatever it's called over your pineal gland, um, this is just <laughs> symbolic example uh, of what we're talking about here. You see, for the past three generations, all the groups that have been built in the United States and other places in the world have all been infiltrated and geared to pull a once high-minded civilization down to basically an animalistic level. And I would invite anyone listening, go out and read Homer's Odyssey. Don't know if Homer was a real guy, don't know if it was written as long ago as they've told us, but I have read the book and it is high-minded. There are words there that you will not be familiar with. There are concepts there that are higher than what we see today. It's a, it's a, a demonstration of where we were and how far we've fallen, basically, anyhow. Right, and before we even get to the Catholic Church and the Vatican and the state they're in today, uh, as far as Western society goes, hundreds of years ago, they were it. They were they were the controlling factor, yep. and they came up with this concept of hell to get people in. Uh, that would be the fear porn of the day. I would I would think. Uh, getting still people is. <laughs> still is yes very much so uh, but that would be one of the earlier ones I mean other than warring factions between countries um, you know to get everybody afraid that if you don't do what we say you're gonna go to hell so that definitely got people uh, into the church sitting in those pews and giving their money and as I addressed a few episodes back um, I'm not gonna tell you what I believe it's not important what I'm going to tell you is what the Vatican believes the Vatican is no different than the Freemasonic orders, and I proved it when I did the episode that used Devil's Pulpit and other things to show what the King of England was being taught while defending what the Catholic Church was doing. The Catholic Church, the, the actual people who are clued in, the top three or whatever it would be, the very top of that organization who truly have the information that is not being lied about, understand hell to be winter. Period. Everyone else below them at differing levels will have the same concept as hell the average person listening has. This fire and brimstone place where sinners go for the rest of eternity. What the King of England in the 1800s, a guy named Carlisle and a Duke of Sussex and the heads of the Vatican were teaching at the highest levels for the, at the king's level was that hell was an allegory that was put into motion centuries before uh, as hell to hide the path of the sun basically and that's all there is to it and people may you know it's tough to talk about these things because people take offense thinking that we're bashing a religion that's not the intention here what I'm telling you here is the people leading these organizations have lied from their outset and made up fantasies and allegories and stories to encode the most basic natural things about our world, which none of us can remember any longer. And a big part of it is the path of the sun, which, of course, they worship. Right, and this this is a... We're not. We're never attacking. Like no researcher is going. Well, maybe some are, but I don't think any of us are intentionally going after a religion specifically. We're just trying to point out. Hey, this is used as a means of control. You can believe spiritually whatever it is you want, whatever makes whatever feels right to you. Because I I think different things and different concepts feel differently to different people, and a lot of it's cultural. Uh, you know, just what you're comfortable with, with what you were raised, and even if you start learning these things, you may still have a leaning in one direction or another. 
But um, and I don't know if I've ever discussed this with you, but you know, even the the figure of Jesus doesn't seem to have ever been a real person. It's very similar to the Crowley and Blavatsky thing. It's like a construct. You know, I'm not going to touch that because too many people are going to fall off the wagon. We're trying to inform people, and it's not my intent here to have people lose their way um, because of a religious comment. I'm just, I'm not going to do it. But what I will say this, um, I absolutely am not attacking religions. But what I am saying is when you join a group, you inherit the problems of that group you inherit the lies of that group. You inherit the control of that group. When that group does silly or terrible things, you inherit some of that as well. And while I'm not attacking Catholics and I'm not attacking Christians, what I am attacking is the King of England, a Duke of Sussex, a rich dude named Carlisle, and the heads of the Vatican Church who were knowingly, complicitly making up allegories and lies and did it for centuries to scare people into keeping their power, basically. And in terms of a place like Vatican, the Vatican City, the establishment, the government of the Vatican, you're looking at a place that has so much money, it could take every rich person off the street tomorrow, which is part of its mandate. And yet this is not what we see. Um, anyhow, we'll, we'll shift away from that. What I'm telling you is basically every one of us has the right to follow a religion. But I would urge each of us to do it on our own. We all have the given ability, or if we choose to think in this way, the God-given ability to figure out things at a very high human level. For the Vatican to come along and say there is no way to God except through this priest that I put here is nonsense. They're stealing human ability from the person that falls for that. There is not a person listening to this that needs anyone to tell them anything spiritual or otherwise because they are a human being at their base and human beings have vast abilities unfortunately human beings can be very gullible and tricked into giving up their power which is what a lot of this is about well as far as religion is concerned to kind of end that i would say the same thing here that i always say on my own show and that's do your own homework but as far as the Catholic Church is concerned, it is, much, it is as much a political institution as it is a spiritual religious one. And they have always had their hand in everything. And just like they have money beyond all belief, they also have a wealth of knowledge. Like it's very commonly held that they have an insane amount of information stored in their archives that they do not allow anyone to get into. So goodness only knows what it is they're uh, obfuscating so that they can maintain their version of what they want history to be. Well, I mean, you can look at any given religion or any given ruling class from any given period in time and watch how they went out, found indigenous species, and the first thing they did was they destroyed the language. This is social engineering. You see, because what is a real problem for the ruling class and for the people who would like to see a one-world one government is ideas. You can't kill an idea. You can't force a person to give up an idea. You can't touch an idea. But when you go in and you find these indigenous cultures who are not going to fall for the encoding of the sun because they're still so connected to nature, they understand everything they need to know about the sun, the seasons, these things that Freemasonry encoded, these things that the Vatican hid away in these bizarre, complex allegories. Um, and so what they did is they went in there and they dismantle them and they start with religion. 
And then the Jesuits came in and forced Christianity down their throat, so then that robbed them of their cultural identity. This is social engineering on the highest order. Um, and, and I would suggest that if you, you really want to learn something of value in this world, in this age, go to somewhere like Australia and try to met, meet someone that is originally and still trained as what we call Aborigines, which isn't a very damn good name for a person who's holding probably some of the most valuable information you could ever be told. Um, you, you can't find very many of these cultures around, but that, that's what I would say. Right. It was done in Australia. And then another really obvious one would be what was done to the Native Americans over the course of about 200 ish years, uh, you know, to the point of literally taking their children and completely taking them off the land away from their families, their cultures, and just bluntly turning them into a Western person. Of course, because these are high minded people. These people are living in their higher minds. They're living in nature. How many of us could be plucked out of our chair today taken out into some wilderness and put down on the planet we live on, on the world we live on, and survive. There are very few of us. And so while we want to look at these people and call them primitive, I would beg to differ. These are people that are living in their higher minds. They understand what we call nature and therefore have a much increased ability to become higher in ability as a human being. But you see, we were taught the opposite. These are loincloth-wearing savages that don't even read English or whatever. It's all social engineering. That's all it is. And these cultures that still exist around the world have more to teach the modern city-dwelling, English-speaking human being than probably anywhere else that you could seek to learn. Because the spirituality has pretty much been vaporized out of our culture. It's, you know, as, as we get into what happened with television, which will be the next episode, and we get into places like the Rockefeller Foundation, the CFR, the Club of Rome, the Rothschild families, how much effort they put into what Freud started, what Jung got into, these psychoanalytical people, some of them, like Jung, apparently being wholehearted fascist Nazi supporter, according to some of the stuff I've read. Um, and then we've got people like Sigmund Freud, who, you know, I think it's Freud. I hope I don't have these guys backwards. If I do, I apologize. But one of them, I think it's Freud, is busy telling people that, you know, every man does not deserve love. Some of these are no better than animals, these, these things we call people, you see. Um, and, of course, we could take it all the way back to Aristotle and Plato, um, there's that same argument that was put forward in these supposed ancient texts, whether or not they're ancient, I don't know. Um, Aristotle saying every person has a divine spark. And he goes out to prove it by taking a slave boy. And I forget, the slave boy is either taught Pythagoras's 47th problem or the doubling of a square, something like this. And then Aristotle stands up and says, see, this was a slave boy that has every bit the divine spark of anyone sitting here looking, claiming he doesn't. And then you get someone like Plato, who, who says the exact opposite, um, that no, um, you know. So it's this, this went on in the modern age with the Tavistock Institute, where they actually have this idea of cybernetics, um, which I will get into more at a later date, where they're trying to say that a human being's mind does not create reality. All it is is a computer interpreting reality. 
and I thought about that when I did the research for this, and I had covered social engineering extensively some years back um, when Rockefeller was the main thing pointed to. Now, Rockefeller and Tavistock and Rothschild are the main things pointed to, and they're all complicit in the CFR, the Trilateral Commission, all these things that apparently run our world. But cybernetics, the idea behind it is that they're trying to prove and think they have proved that the human brain is just a computer. It just parses out what reality is. And so, if I am correct, that's a lie. And it's a known lie. What they did was set a benchmark to say that a human mind creates no, no bit of reality. It just parses. It interprets no different than a computer. So they began to socially engineer us over thir three generations and have succeeded quite mightily in pulling most of us down into our lower brain, which makes us a lot closer to the idea of cybernetics, that our minds don't create anything. So it's almost like they set this idea and then set out to make people that way. The truth of it is, from my point of view, having spent 54 years of my life researching heavily, probably not the first 15, but by the time I was 16, this place was not good enough for me anymore, and I never stopped looking at everything from that point forward. Anyone, as an example, who has ever taken a hallucinogenic drug with someone else will understand that their mind has created this whole other reality they couldn't see when they weren't on the drug. Well, someone could come along and make the, the argument, well, your brain's just interpreting. Well, I beg to differ, and here's why. Because while you went on that trip, and all reality changed because of your mind, you heard the color blue. You smelled a sound. You did all these things that are not possible outside of that experience, and yet the person next to you made a whole different reality. And to me, if no other method applied proves that all the ancient accounts that the human mind creates this reality are true. And I always, up to the Tavistock Institute research, assumed that so much of the lying and programming that goes on is to get our minds to create this false reality thereafter. But it seems that what they are actually doing is benchmarking a human being as no better than a computer and then gener generation after generation programming us down into our lower animal or reptilian minds to try to make that statement true. In other words, invent a lie and then manipulate reality until it's no longer a lie. Well, the big difference between humans and computers, I would suggest, would be if you took <clears throat> two computers and fed them the same data, they're going to get the same answer because it's just binary ones and zeros. The computations will be done the same. Between two humans, you could feed them the same thing and you're going to get two different results, which is why I would suggest they have to target the social engineering from so many different levels. For instance – Trying to manipulate me with rap music isn't going to work, so you have to attack me with rock music because that's what I like. But then these genres are just covered in, in, in a, on a huge scale. You know, they, they're trying to target the control over everybody, so they have to find what way they can use to get to you. That's right, and look at the elements within what you're talking about. Within the generation I came from, it was predominantly rock and roll music and drugs, and it did succeed in putting us all into worthless animal minds. We were all high, we were all wrapped up in the music, the celebrity of the musicians, the message that the music was pushing, which was not created 
by the Jimmy Pages and the Jim Morrisons you think it was. Um, it had everything to do with what the ruling class wanted pushed at the time. And so we come fast forward to the rap generation, and we're seeing what happened to me on steroids in some ways, where women have been completely marginalized. They're not even human beings anymore. They're just sex objects. They're not even referred to as women, for crying out loud. They're bitches and hoes, and you know, and, and every level of rap society is referring to them in this way. But while this is going on, it's raining money. There's a Porsche. There's a Maserati. It is this low materialistic, animalistic mindset ramped up to such absurd proportions that they are just taking out wholesale generations where you can now go into inner city and find families who can't even barely put enough food on the table, and yet every kid in that family is wearing Air Jordan sneakers. That's the social programming. And that's oh, what, absolutely. Yeah, that's what rips the top off. That's what rips your human ability right off the top of your head and pushes you down into your mind. And I know what I'm talking about because I was there in the 60s. I was there in the drug culture. And as I got older and I broke free and looked backwards, I began to realize. And by the time I was 40, I looked around at all the people I knew and it was a wasteland. It was the most effective decimation of a generation you could ever imagine. And all this get, goes back in time, like the, the seeds of this would have been sown in the 20th century. We have wars that were done over the course of several hundred years. The uh, Western society was kind of condensed down into these nation states so they could use that to pit people against each other and keep that tribalism going. But when you get into the 20th century, this is when you really see things starting to solidify like, okay, this is how we can really control the masses. You have Edward Bonnet's putting out the uh, propaganda book, which j pretty much set the table for everything because not only did the, the United States side of it use it, the Germans used it, like everybody used that. And the – uh, creation of the film industry and then well first it was radio and tell and film then television you see that they they have got this down to such a science they know how to target us on on every level and in every way to get what they want well it's it's crazy you look at the vietnam war which was going on in conjunction with the kind of hippie drug movement um, and what they did was they set this unpopular war on one side that was going to directly affect the people who were going to protest it because they, they could be drafted. Um, and then they went into the universities, literally went in and co-opted universities. I will, in my next episode, I will say a list of known co-opted universities that have been co-opted by Central Intelligence and other organizations like that um and uh, not too long ago I, I mentioned in one of my interviews the article that came in the paper the death of the american university well this is exactly what it's talking about but to get back to the vietnam war they create this unpopular thing that all these kids were against and then they went into the universities and they created the drug culture and the students for democratic living or some group like this which was actually them playing both sides of the coin so while they were playing their war game, they were manipulating the kids that weren't at war and getting them on drugs and socially engineering everybody so that no one would take their higher mind out, think, and get something done because that generation did have the opportunity to change this world. That's why they were targeted. Um, and then on top of it, uh, they took the America off at the knees when they left Vietnam in the way they did because nobody in this world thought America could be beaten at anything. 
And so that was really at John F. Kennedy's staged assassination and the Vietnam loss of Vietnam was the turning point for America, the true loss of innocence, the true any generation left here in this country was no longer this proud, I'm an American thing. Suddenly there was uncertainty. And this is social engineering and brainwashing in spades. This kind of good times jerk you into something unimaginable. Um, and that, that the benchmark I put was the faked assassination of JFK and the loss of Vietnam. Because before that, America was all that. And it wasn't just all that to Americans. It was all that to the entire world. Well, they always call the World War II generation the greatest generation because of what they achieved. Uh, it started with Korea, where that one was just kind of iffy, but then Vietnam was really out there. And they took this confidence and this belief in the American uh, system and the American uh, just way of life where everybody was very confident and you know there was just this image that they had. I would I would definitely agree with you that Vietnam just completely decimated that You know, from the people who were there all the way up now. American can lose. Well, I would grab onto something you said there. The greatest generation, they truly were the last greatest generation we can see, but not for the reasons you think. They were the greatest generation because they lived before television. They lived before full-scope Hollywood. And what that meant was that generation was still living in a higher-mindedness and their cerebral cortex and the higher portions of their mind away from the limbic systems. We can go back and look at what was being built. Look at the architecture in the city of Chicago, the architecture in the city of New York, how cars were being produced, all these things that this higher-minded generation uh, where the, the social engineering on steroids began with that generation, the past three generations. In my view, that was the code word for why they were the last great generation. And that's no lie, because we have slid exorably downhill since the greatest generation of World War II. And what people really do need to realize is that once uh, mainstream entertainment came into being, that they figured out, like, little by little, how they could do this, and now it's so blatant and obvious that it's disgusting. But I'd actually like to discuss uh, how, how you see the creation of film and the creation of radio and then into television, how they did this and what things looked like uh, starting early off, how they were manipulating and then how they worked their way up. You know, <clears throat> television took over every every household, 50s, 60s. Everybody had one and then they could pretty much put, do anything they want at that point. Well, let's use my uh, let's use the article I did on the weaponization of music and we'll use RCA, the RCA Corporation as the benchmark. So I think it's 1939, if I'm mangling dates here, I'm in the ballpark. I didn't look these things up before I sat down to speak. But roughly around 1939, they changed the orchestral A tuning all around the world to 440 hertz. As people who have followed me know, 44 is the death code. So they changed it from a Fibonacci-based 382. Actually, what is it? Am I getting that wrong? Anyhow, let, let me back up. Before they went to 440, there was a Fibonacci-based frequency for orchestral A tuning, and it was eight cycles a second different. When they went to 44, which is the death doors, which is coded the death number all the time, they weaponized music. The only reason I'm going back this far to do this is to show it was just prior to World War II in the greatest generation. But the RCA Corporation was co-opted 
by the military openly, as was all of Hollywood, Disney, all the studios were co-opted for the war experience. Um, and we can see this. We can even go look. Not too long ago, I mentioned uh, Harakiri, a Japanese movie that talks about the Fukushima prefect um, of Hiroshima, you know, encoding the, the nuclear nonsense. Um, they were running Western music. So here's Japan at war making movies, and yet they're not putting all the music in the movie as people playing kodos and Japanese-style music. But the soundtrack is Hollywood in the middle of World War II when this is made, as an example. Anyhow, World War II starts up RCA Corporation and all forms of media are co-opted to the, to the supposed military industrial complex needs. What people never really grasped was that when the war supposedly ended, these things were never uncoopted. By then, they were all controlled by Rockefeller Foundations and other things of this sort, with very few exceptions. And so we, we came out of the war, but that wartime kind of war intention put behind all the propaganda for the wartime effort that we were told was needed never stopped from that point forward. Um, and so I don't know how well I actually address that because I have I have all this research that I'm doing to put the television side of things together next time around. But it's it's kind of a demonstration that I can show uh, music was weaponized in 39. It became an unhealthy thing in 1939. And it's not just some music. It's all music. It's how an orchestra tunes to A, middle A. Um, and then it was co-opted into the war, weaponized further and then when the war ended it was never de-weaponized and of course the Rockefellers and Rothschilds and the same same you know culprits that are always around with all the money uh, just slowly bought it all up whatever they didn't already have right what you're referring to is is when they changed from now different in the past in the 17th 18th 19th centuries they different composers would sometimes use different tunings but you're referring to the difference between 440 and 432 I personally Right. Personally, I use 432 because I find it more pleasant. I've even tested myself, and I always picked out 432 as the one that appealed to me more. Um, there's a lot of people who argue about w where that really came from, but it really does seem to be that it was deliberately changed, and I agree with everything you just said on that. Well, uh, well, well. wait a minute there. You, see, a lot of people want – there's a lot of disinformation out there acting like the move to 440 was a good thing. First of all, when you begin to tune all pianos to 440, for someone to come into an orchestra and say, okay, guys, we're going to play in 432 becomes a problem. Because now you got to get a piano tuner in to take two hours or more to tune a piano back. And then when he's done, they're going to have to jack it back to the 440 for the average players that are going to be there. But anyone in this world can go out and get the D-Tuner uh, app for their iPod. Go take Back in Black by ACDC and tune it down to 432. And you will instantly, instantly understand what 440 does. It heightens the excitement. It pulls you down into your animal brain further. Um, if songs like Smoke on the Water and ACDC music were written in 432 instead of 440, they would not have had the same impact that they're famous for. No, it, it targets the aggression aggression levels in a yes. different way. That that's definitely what I've. I think I think that's what I was subconsciously picking up on when I was even doing blind tests to myself. Yes. Because I am a studio engineer and I, I can easily manipulate stuff in my software. And I was like, oh my god, I can really hear a difference and I can feel a difference. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's no doubt. I've done. I play guitar as well. Um, and and what's funny about it is like if you would have considered someone who was really really big time, like Cat Stevens, who predominantly played a, a an acoustic guitar, for him to have recorded all that in four three two would have made his music that much more powerful because it would have reached people on a whole other level. Um, and instead, everything was pulled to four forty. And not only that, we can show that the Rockefeller Foundation, the Rothschilds. Some Supposedly Nazis like Goebbels, if there were such a thing, um, were all involved in pushing, and they went at it twice. It's a bit like what we see with Facebook trying to get everyone's real name. They make a run at it, they fail, and they regroup and they come at it again. They're like little effing termites. Doesn't matter if they fail five times, they're going to carve this building down because they will not stop. They will keep coming, and that's exactly what they did in 1939 on the second run trying to implement orchestral a tuning of 440 hertz which is harmful to living beings right and so we have that in the whole 40s era and then we get into the 50s where we have the advent of rock and roll music which is the beginning of a complete cultural shift right i mean there's even little touch points that we can go back to look at to see uh what the greatest generation was saying about this uh what's jerry lee lewis great balls of fire what a perfect allegory. So here's a guy who's down in the South playing this newfangled rock music, tuned to 440, in-your-face, abrupt, haul-and-butt piano, playing it with his feet even, and the community around him is telling their children, that's the devil's music, don't listen to it. So when we were told that in like the 70s, we thought, oh, those fuddy-duddy, ridiculous people, the devil's music. But you see, they understood what was going on the people of the greatest generation understood what that music was doing to their daughters, to their sons, to society as a whole, and yet we just got the remnants of it. Oh, the devil's being let out of his, you know, his jar somewhere um, to, to belittle the idea. But in fact, what was happening was the whole of entertainment and what had been considered entertainment up to that point was shifting and it was shifting in a weaponized way by people who had psychiatrists and psychologists on staff, and they brought us Beatlemania and Elvis mania, which is the proof in the pudding. Right. And, and they were probably picking up on the same thing I do when I hear modern rap music and, and the, the pop and all that that's the very the most bluntly uh, skewed stuff. Like it, I can feel it. It's like an assault on me. I literally have to back off and like, no, I, I can see what it is. It's, it's horrible. Yeah, you know? it's, it's exactly that. See, because you can see people, uh, the greatest generation, listening to Bach, which is some of the most complex music supposedly ever put down. Mozart, Bach. I mean, you're living in your highest mind to be able to produce music like that, and you're living in your higher mind to sit there and enjoy that. And all of a sudden, it's whittled down to crap, and here comes rock and roll. As a matter of fact, there's an interview anyone can look up where the Beatles have just come to America, and one of the older generation, leftovers from the greatest generation, asked Paul McCartney, are you guys even consider yourselves good musicians? You know? He asked the Beatles that because it's very clear what's happening. So when you fast forward to what Jason just pointed out, now in rap, half what's called music doesn't even have a melody. Well, how can music not have a melody or a harmony? Isn't that one of the most basic tenets of music? If we fast forward it back to the greatest generation, Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, these very complex, very high-minded 
productions of music and orchestration. They have these things, complex melodies, four-part harmonies, five-part harmonies, all these things, time signatures, changing time signatures, staccato, toccata, all these things, so complex. And now we fast forward to the modern day where rap is taking it all over and half the, what we're calling music doesn't even have a melody or a harmony. So you can see it's all pulling us down into our lower mind. And you can see that it's a, it's a real intentional dissension. Of course. And all uh, just how they've intertwined the music and all the social changes they wanted to institute. Like if we go back to the 40s and then 50s, we had the end of World War II is the introduction of the atomic age. Then in the 50s and 60s, we have the introduction of the space age. And all these things are all tied into the music and the culture. So you can see how they were uh, really going at this from multiple angles. Yeah, and in my view, you just named two ages that are basically fraud. I don't accept that there is nukes. I don't accept that anyone has gone above low Earth orbit. And if they have, it is in a way that has never even been described to us in any way that we would recognize because we've been given this whole other picture of space that doesn't exist. So, I mean, those are great points, Jason. Right. And then so that was gradual and they had these small introductions. I, I think the 60s, the, the mid to late 60s is where they really took that and skewed it radically. Just as you were saying, uh, you're just old enough to have caught that. And from your own first person perspective, you can see that, especially looking back now, that was where they really grabbed the bull by the horns and said, we're doing this and shoving it down. And yeah. you go you go from the 60s uh, and there's been great work pointing out how the majority of the big rock star icons were, if not manufactured, definitely taken and skewed, but a lot of them probably were manufactured on top of that. And you have that in the 60s and then the 70s, and you can see just how the cultural shifted too. The 60s, from my point of view, was is like happy and colorful and, and positive and all this. And then there's this almost line drawn in the sand where you go from the 60s to the 70s, and all of a sudden you see grays and darkness and drab and it's like oh my goodness like what happened what changed you know yeah well i mean there is a lot of that but you know if if i i started life in places i shouldn't have very young like i should be 60 years old right now to have been part of the rock movement that i talk about that i was part of because I got into it way too young. As a matter of fact, by by all measurements, it probably should have ruined me um, because I was way too young a kid to have been anywhere near any of that nonsense, and yet I was right in the middle of it. But in the 70s, you know, you have things like the gas crisis where these manipulations to brainwash are going to jerk people into hard times. But when you compare the 70s, one of the things I remember more than anything about the 70s was when we came... To this coast where I am now uh, during summertime I was from the time I was 9 10 tops when we got here I would leave I would go down to the beach I had a fishing pole I had a diving mask and we would build a fort on the beach and there was that much freedom we had boats I would take boats all the way out to open ocean when I was 10 11 years old with no supervision having passed a test that showed my father I could tie a bowline 
I could tie a half hitch. I could tie all the nautical knots I needed to safely get the boat back on mooring. Um, that was my test. Well, there was more tests, actually, with the, the engine on the outboard and sailing tests. But when I had taken those tests, and all the kids in the neighborhood were the same, we could all go. You see, this is 100% viewable evidence of social engineering. The mindset at that time, even though everybody knows, compared to the 60s, the 70s were going to be thought of as a hardship. The freedoms abounded. We were still making the best cars. Everyone still had pride in their country, their job, everything, their, their family. But they were not afraid to let their young children go live and grow. So when I'm 10, 11 years old, I'm literally checking out, see a mom and dad, and I'm feeding myself out of the water, catching clams, lobsters, fish, whatever, when I'm hungry, and I'm going out to the open ocean in boats. You see, that kind of development for a child is unheard of today. Now you're guarded, locked in, get in here by the time it's dark, and you see it's all a fabricated mindset. This is more obvious poignant things we can touch and see from the social engineering that's gone on where now everyone is scared to death there's terrorism there's this there's shootings all this made up nonsense and it has worked it has changed everybody's mind and of course now uh, back when when i was that age i still had my grand grandparents from the greatest generation you know those people are pretty much gone now and it's just us in lower minds now so since you've actually lived through the 60s, would you say the JFK incident was the beginning of the end of the uh, American innocence and, and the destruction of that great generation? Yeah, but it came in different ways. It's absolutely where I would plant the banner to say this is when the full-on attack proper is starting up um, to have an outcome generations later. Um, you know, we see it even with Woodstock. You know, I maintain Woodstock did not go down in the way we were told it did, but then it was followed up by Altamont, where supposedly all these people got killed. It's just more staged events pulling us away from a time when kids could have that freedom to go grow up like a human being and test things and get into trouble and get themselves out of trouble. I can't tell you how many times I was diving and something scary as hell happened, but I got myself out of it. Kids don't grow up in this way anymore, but it was like that, just incrementally implemented. JFK dies, then something else happens. The Manson murder, the moon landing, Woodstock, you know, just bang, bang, bang. The, the gas shortage just whittling away at a once high-minded, proud nation, to be a bit tribalistic myself, but I was there, I saw it, um, into what we've become today, which is nothing to be proud of unfortunately. And I don't mean that in a derisive way. I mean that we have been attacked and the attack has been very successful. Now, I've heard you say this before, and if you can uh, explain this a bit better, that JFK was the killing of the king. Well, it's, it's part of a Masonic tradition, and there are other people who could probably cover this better. I don't know, maybe the Jungle Surfer would be one of those people, I'm not sure. But there is this ritual, which is the killing of the king. And so JFK was a staged event. What you're looking at in that car is a dummy. And it's unfortunate that very few people can see that. But once you kind of click yourself out of the, the haze, the fog of the lie, and start to see again, you will see this. But this idea of killing the king 
is a ritual that's just that, uh, meant to cut America off at the knees. You know, they came, they killed our president. We can't figure out who did it. We're, we're going to lose the Vietnam War. Just bang, 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 taking this great nation that was a beacon of light to the world and just flipping it upside down. You're not great anymore. Someone we don't even know can kill your president. We're never going to find him. It's a bit like bin Laden. Some seven-foot dude living in a cave can come take down two buildings. It's the same game all over again. As a matter of fact, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe even the faked assassination of bin Laden is another example of that killing the king thing. But very few people understand what I'm about to say next. And so many people will think that Kennedy actually died. Did you know that Kennedy is Irish and his name in Gaelic... It's a word that starts with C that I can't pronounce, but you can look it up. Kennedy's name in Gaelic means ugly head or head wound. I kid you not. And so there you see the Masonic game that I just outlined in 9-11. Now I'm outlining it back to Kennedy. Um, it was all a Masonic ritual, and it was designed to have an effect on a nation, and damn well it did. Um, I can still ask my mom to this day, do you remember where you were when JFK was killed? And that shows you the, the power of that incident and how no matter what actually happened that day, the subconscious influence that it started right then and there, and that mindset just lasted for all the way up until now. Well, you're looking at a generation. My mom was cutting me loose for most of a summer. I'd check in once a week, um, and when I ask her about JFK, um, she tells me where she was. She was ironing. Um, it, it was a month before I was born. Um, little more than a month before i was born um and she said she cried for two days so there it is right because these people cared enough about not just that individual as a man but what it what he represented for their culture the, the country and, and the entire american culture there's there's no doubt um in in my mind you nailed it uh, i mark the really kind of full frontal assault where America is going to be ripped down from this heroic beacon of light in the eyes of Americans in the world, and the engineering to make it something else in earnest started with the death of JK, JFK or the, the killing of the king. And I will have to look into bin Laden, but as I began to think about this, it sure feels like maybe that's the same ritual for Muslims in a way or something. I don't know. I would have to look at it. That's definitely an interesting concept regardless. But going from the 60s now... You see that there's kind of the, that line of the sand. Then you see the assault with uh, the culture, with all the, the rock and roll icons. You get into the 70s. Um, they've kind of continued that, but now they've dragged society down, as you were saying, to this uh, everyone is struggling thing. But then they come out with all these blockbuster situations. You know, rock music has taken on a height where there's now stadium rock, where like giant get-togethers, uh, almost like a mass ritual kind of thing, you know, tens of thousands of people in one place to see this band, and then you have the advent of the blockbuster movie with Jaws and Star Wars and uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and these each of these things now becomes completely part of the mainstream subcultures. It actually becomes more than that in my view. It begins to drive it in a way. Um, these things become more than memes in a culture. Um, the events like Star Wars in 1977, uh, that's like a big turning point where not only will it be referenced 
in culture till the end of time, it's like this weird turning point in a way where it had such a profound effect on the consciousness of culture that it began to shape how culture was going to act and how it was going to move. But I wanted to backtrack a second. Um, I recently read that Alice Cooper Band, the Alice Cooper Band made something like $17 million in 1970. I don't know what it was, 72, 74, early, early on in the 70s, made that much money. In 1970s money, that is filthy, filthy, filthy rich. And to me, this really demonstrates who these people are and what they are doing. Go back and look at the earliest clips on YouTube of Alice Cooper wearing a pink tutu, looking like an alcoholic, skinny little dork, singing, I'm 18. And look at that man and say and say to yourself, is there any way in hell in two years this guy's going to be making nearly $20 million a year in 70s money? Um, and you will begin to see what happened. And then, of course, look where Alice Cooper's come and, you know, all these years pushing the devil um, and cutting things up on stage. He became a Christian. It's just you can see the construct in my view of what, musicians of that era are what they were there for by simply scrutinizing Alice Cooper and then looking at the amount he was paid and uh, realizing that he was just a dork. Um, he didn't write that damn music. I will never accept he wrote that damn music. Um, you listen to it now. It's just too complex for what you're watching. Right. So it's really obvious that he was being used uh, along with a, a whole number of others throughout the 70s to create these massive movements that made a hell of a lot of money and of course as you pointed out they ended up filling stadiums which before that time the only thing stadiums were used for were football and soccer um, and all of a sudden here we have these golden sun gods um, to quote you know Robert Plant from Zeppelin uh, <laughs> filling stadiums um, yeah, it's you can see what's happening. The what's important in a society can be reflected in where the money goes and and what effort is made to support those activities. And when you see rock bands beginning to fill stadiums and the amount of money they're making, it's a pretty integral part of the culture at that point. Right, and you can see how the social engineers got the hang of it as as time went on because you go from the 70s into the 80s where they've really got the hang of this. They know how to manipulate the culture because you can see just the way everyone's dressing and all that. Like you weren't able to be a popular rock metal band in the 80s if you didn't have the teased up long hair and, and almost dressing like a girl and the tight jeans. Like they, they all look the same. That's you know, right. It became the very kind of me, 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 happiest time you could imagine. Of course, what was the drug then? The drug then was no longer pot. The drug then was no longer LSD. The drug then was cocaine. They imported cocaine for the 80s. But before we get into the 80s, uh, let's take a five-minute break, and we'll come in and pick up at the 80s. Sounds good. All right, man. All right, man, we had to take a quick break uh, to use the restroom and other things, uh, and we're going to close out the first hour, which will run on YouTube here of Crow 777 Radio Podcast, episode 29. Um, but I wanted to add an observation that I had in the night sky um, a little while ago, not too long ago, um, and this kind of plays into the social engineering. You know, there was a movie by H.G. Wells called The Time Machine. Then in the 70s, there was an update to that idea with a movie called time after time 
and uh, I saw it a long time ago. They ran it recently, and I saw a little bit of it, um, and I looked at it on purpose to see a few things. Um, one of the things that was mentioned is exactly this idea of the greatest generation being more high-minded than we currently are. Uh, the main protagonist in the uh, story, the guy with the time machine, is talking. He's traveled forward in time. He's in the 80s, I guess, or 70s. Um, and he's talking to this lady who's in the modern age, and he says, where's all your books? And she says, well, I don't really have any books. I pretty much just go to the movies now. And that one line encapsulates exactly what I'm going to say next, and it demonstrates the social engineering that media has done to us all, television, movies, and other things. Um, since I was about 14, I've collected books, and there is no book that I have here that is a paperweight. In other words, that I didn't read cover to cover or significant parts of it or decide that it was wholesale nonsense and use it just as a nonsense reference. Um up to the 90s, I had just massive quantities of books, and then, of course, I began to realize that all my astronomy and NASA stuff was not what I thought it was, and by the time I'd gotten a little further down the road, um, I started collecting whole other books, and a lot of that had to do with the age of a book. What I'm about to mention that I observed in the night sky here, I would have never had the mind or the eyes to see had I not read what are attributed as ancient accounts of people looking at the night sky and calling it the dome of the sky. People in my old clips have seen me reference uh, Omar Khayyam and other people. These are the types of texts I'm talking about, where they're referring even the Mason, the masonry studies, where they're calling it the arch of the sky, even the dome of the sky. Um, I was out. It had been windy as heck for about three nights, and it was just too windy and getting to be a little too cold to have the equipment out, but the wind would not have allowed the telescope to track right. Um, I was out late at night, there was no moon, and I noticed I could see the Milky Way perfectly. The seeing was perfect. It had been so windy, there were no chemtrails for a couple days. There was no lingering chem debris, there were no clouds because the wind was whipping through. And uh, I ran in and I got my glasses to see for long distance, you know, beyond 2020, a little better than 2020. I put them on and I went out. And it hit me all at once like a ton of bricks when I realized I could see the dome of the sky that had been expressed in so many of those old books that I had written, written or read. Um, and what I saw was a naked eye confirmation that those old people writing those old versions of what they saw in the night sky is true. But more than that, that a person living now, away from city lights, away from chemtrails, away from pollution, on a moonless night, when you can see the Milky Way, if you have the right mind and the eyes to see with, you can see the dome of the sky. And it stunned me. I sat there until I was freezing, uh, ran in, got my jacket, went back out, and just for like an hour, just kept looking. Am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? And I was. Uh, it was an amazing experience, and I wanted to share that before we close out the first hour on YouTube. Anyhow, um, we're going to get ready. Jason, do you want to run down at all what we're going to cover in the second hour? Do you have a, a well-formed enough cheat sheet there in front of you? I sure do, and before we do end out hour one, um, I wanted to, to throw this in here for everyone. Um, the movie you were referring to, Time After Time, I actually happen to really like that movie, and I rewatched it about a year ago. They had two really good British actors. Uh, Malcolm McDowell played 
H.G. Wells and David Warner played the person that turned out to be Jack the Ripper. And just like you said, they come into what was the present time at the time, which I believe was 1979 because David Warner was wearing a uh, John Travolta disco outfit and he's in a disco. There you go. And it's interesting and in, in, from the social engineering aspect because H.G. Wells seemed like this nerdy, uh, out-of-place, not-hip character, whereas the serial killer fit in perfectly, was e easily able to go from the Victorian era to 20th century time and just blend right in. Right, H.G. Wells was still a high-minded individual using his upper brain uh, that is being diminished in all of us, but there's actually another weird crossover here because Malcolm McDowell is famous for having played in Clockwork Orange. Yep. Now, Clockwork Orange is no different than the things we mentioned earlier, like Brave New World and 1984 being references to the coming social engineer and leading to a one-world government. Uh, in Brave New World, it's kind of like drugging people so that they're happy to be in the situation they're in, in a way. But Clockwork Orange is a wholesale demonstration of what society can be when pulled into its lower reptilian, animal, or limbic mind. Um, so there's that weird crossover, too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I remember really liking that movie as a child before I knew what I know now. And rewatching it, I was like, wow, just totally stuck out to me. But uh, to get into what we're going to do for hour two, we're going to discuss the continued progression through the decades of how everything was manipulated on uh, from the social engineering aspect. So the 1980s, the 1990s, and then how everything changed with, again, almost like we had the JFK thing in the 60s. Now we have 9-11 uh, in 2001 and how everything got completely rerouted and sent in a different direction or probably more like consolidated. And then we have the Internet age coming in and that puts us up to today. All right, so there it is, man. That'll bring the first hour of Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 29, to a close. And the second hour, probably hour plus, will be posted on Crow777radio.com for membership. Anyhow, thank you all for listening to the first portion. Okay, I almost forgot. In the second hour, uh, we continue through the timeline uh, to demonstrate the social engineering that's gone on and point out some of the salient points and ideas that people can think about. In the same way that JFK is a big milestone in the social engineering from Tavistock, the families that I've mentioned, uh, the usual players um, and the outliers from the usual players, 9-11 again comes as a huge milestone for these folks. And uh, in the next episode, when I get into television to demonstrate to everybody what it is, who owns it, and how it's controlled, and how over three generations they have taken a huge portion of our society and pulled them from their high-minded human abilities in the greatest generation near World War II down to a much more animalistic mindset. And they did it using media. They did it using TV. They did it using all the things at their disposal. And they even have documents that stated their intent from the outset. So anyhow, I hope you'll tune in to the, to the second hour. And we again, we go right up through the timeline pointing out some of the major components of social engineering designed to do the very things I just mentioned. So there it is, man. Cheers. Cheers.